Hello and welcome to the week in 60 minutes. I'm John Connolly, the Spectator's news editor and your host for this week. Coming up on the show. We're only a month into Humza Yousaf's leadership of the SNP. His party seems to have imploded. With senior members of the SNP facing arrest, resignations and police searches. Is this the end of the party? And with that independence, Andrew Neil joins me on the show. As world leaders fly to Belfast for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, who are Ireland's violent men of peace? Douglas Murray takes a look for this week's magazine. He joins me on the show, along with Arlene Foster. For our cover piece this week, Louise Perry and Paul Morgan Bentley share their views on surrogacy. Louise joins me on the show, followed by Kim Cotton, who is the UK's first surrogate mother. And finally, is it wrong for Netflix to portray Cleopatra as black in their new series? Some may think it's an erasure of history, but does that matter? I'm joined by Professor David Abelafia. Before we get going, if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. And if you want to read more from The Spectator, then why not subscribe to the magazine as well? For just £12, you can get 12 weeks in print and online and a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer to subscribe. To kick things off, we're starting with the state of the SNP. I'm here now with The Spectator's chairman, Andrew Neil, who has been following the story closely. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, in the sort of past month or so since Nicola Sturgeon resigned, we've had for the SNP, we've had arrests, resignations, arguments over membership levels, a fractious leadership election. Um, in all your time looking at politics, have you ever seen the implosion of a political party like this? Uh, I would say no. I've never seen something unravel as quickly as this uh, of a party uh, unraveling. I mean, of course, Liz Truss's government unraveled pretty quickly. And uh, I saw one commenter, commentator say that in the scale of disasters, it's somewhere between the Hindenburg uh, and Liz Truss. And I think that probably uh, does uh, put it in the right context. I mean, we would never have thought this even two months ago. We would never have thought that Nicola Sturgeon's departure would lead to the unravelling of the position of the SNP in Scotland, uh, and indeed the unravelling of the independence cause in Scotland as well. It is a remarkable change. I mean, only Shakespeare could cover, you know, what a falling off there was. And we haven't yet had the police report. We haven't yet. The police are still uh, in the middle or coming towards the end of their inquiries. There have been, as you say, a number of arrests. I see speculation in the Scottish media that even Nicola Sturgeon might be arrested. Uh, and taken in for questioning. I mean, that is just incredible. So it's a story that is no, by no means over uh, yet. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, we still don't know what this happened to the £600,000 they raid. I see there's now a rather expensive camper van in the equation as well. I mean, only in British politics could a camper van be uh, uh, a credible piece of evidence. So let's see where it unravels. However it unravels cannot be to the benefit of the SNP. Mm, I mean, what do you think the Scottish public make of this? I mean, they must be just looking on with complete bafflement that this sort of domineering party that sort of dominated Scottish politics for years is now, is now in complete anarchy. Well, 
Only a few months ago, Nicola Sturgeon could walk on water. <laughs> now, she, uh, even stepping over a puddle is dangerous for her. She, uh, she isn't waving, she's drowning. And uh, I think the Scottish public um, are amazed at what's happened. I don't think they wholly understand it. Uh, I think it has discredited the SNP in the eyes of the voters, uh, a party that hitherto has dominated Scottish politics and will in its own way, I suspect, still remain the largest party. But it's not invincible anymore. It is not the voice of Scotland anymore, the way it has liked to portray uh, itself. And I suppose the best the context to see this is what is happening is the inevitable denouement of what happens in one-party states. That you've had the SNP riding high on the hog for a long, long time now, almost for a generation, uh, unchallenged by any of the other political parties in Scotland, with a rather tame media, uh, which in many areas have been cheerleaders uh, for it, with a, a bubble in Holyrood and in Edinburgh where... Uh, they only, there's no one there to criticise her or the SNP. Indeed, if anything, they want to cheer her to go further on. A party that's gone in hock to the radical Greens in Scotland as well. And I suppose in some way, and also you just can't question her. We saw that video of Nicola Sturgeon who got quite shirty when anyone dared to suggest that the finances of the SNP were anything but rosy and pristine. And so I think all that comes from being in power for too long, being unchallenged for too long, by not having an aggressive and robust enough media uh, for too long as well. And although it was in the end bound to come to an end in some sticky way, I certainly never foresaw that it would come to an end uh, in a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. Mm, certainly spectacular. Um, where does this leave Humza Youssef now? I mean, he's tried to relaunch his party twice now. It's obviously been overshadowed by other events. Do you, do you think he even has the capability to sort of lead the party through this? Well, when this week he made his big kind of state of the union, or what he would like it to be, state of the breakup of the union uh, speech, uh, about how he was going to run things in the weeks, months, uh, years ahead, almost no one took any notice. It was overshadowed by all the other events we've been talking about. And I think that's part of his problem. Uh, the other events overshadow what he's trying to do. And no one's much interested in what he's trying to do as a result. And indeed, most dangerous for all politicians is not when they're being criticised. Politicians are always criticised. Even for a time, they can be ignored. You can survive that too. Things can swing back in your favour. But as I look at the coverage of him uh, across the spectrum, he's become an object of derision. That's very dangerous for politicians. When you're derided, treated as a joke character, not taken seriously, that, I don't know how you recover for that. And I, I would say that all supporters of the union, those who want to see Scotland and England remain in the union that is the United Kingdom, I suspect they ought to be crossing the figures that the current First Minister remains First Minister for the foreseeable future, uh, because I think it's impossible for him to deliver uh, on uh, the breakup of the United Kingdom. If Nicola Sturgeon couldn't do it, I see no way that he is going to be able to do it uh, either. So at the moment, he is probably 
the best guarantor of the continued union between Scotland and, and England uh, at the moment. And I think if Miss Forbes's main rival was to take over, she'd be a more formidable figure. And I see a lot of commentary of people saying he may not be around for long. You know, they'll do badly now. They'll lose seats to Labour in the general election. They'll lose even more seats in the next Holyrood election. He won't be there for long. He'll be replaced. I think if you believe in the union, you ought to keep your fingers crossed that that doesn't uh, happen. But it's a, it's a grim time for the SNP. It's a grim time for those who want to break up the United Kingdom. It's a grim time for the independence uh, movement uh, at, at, at the moment. And I would say that the union seems to me to be as safe as it has been since Scotland voted 55-45 to remain in the union in that referendum way back in 2014. Would you go as far to say even that um, independence as, as an issue has been buried for a generation even, or do you think that's pushing it too much? Well, the problem is in Scotland, we don't know what a generation is. <coughs> we were told that... Uh, that uh, the last referendum had settled the matter, indeed Nicola Sturgeon Im implied that it had settled the matter for a generation. It turns out that, of course, a generation in Scotland may be only five years or ten years. And, of course, given male longevity in the west of Scotland, which is among the lowest in the Western world, maybe that is the correct generation, uh, the correct definition of generation in Scotland. Uh, gone for a generation. We live in a world where things can change very quickly. But it isn't just the crisis that currently faces the SNP, which then becomes a crisis for the independent movement because the SNP is the vanguard, is the vehicle by which independence was meant to happen. All the questions that were raised in the 2014 referendum, particularly the economic questions uh, about what currency would be used, would there be a border between Berwick and uh, Carlisle? How easy would it be for an independent Scotland to rejoin the EU? How would you finance the budget deficit on independence, which currently is financed by the rest of the Union? How could you borrow in a new currency? All these questions, which were important in 2014, they're even more important now, and not one of these questions has been convincingly answered. So whoever is running the SNP, even if they were managed to get the show back on the road after this car crash of a period, they've still got these questions to answer and they've not come close in any way to doing so. So I think, John, maybe a generation out is not, uh, it's certainly gone uh, as a prospect independence uh, for the foreseeable future. Mm. And it may be now that the SNP implosion has kind of left a bit of a vacuum at the centre of Scottish politics. Do you get the sense that Labour are the ones who can really benefit out of this? Or are they not well, a serious enough proposition? Labour yeah. will be the ones that will benefit from this. By how much, we don't know. Uh, the, the Tories can benefit from it because they're the party of government in Westminster. And there will be an anti-government vote, not just in Scotland, but throughout the United Kingdom. That is just a price you pay if you've been in power for the number of years the Tories have been in power since 2010. So Labour is the party that will benefit uh, and that will help Keir Starmer in his efforts to form the next government UK-wide. How many seats he will get? Well, no, no prospect of going back 
to the days when the Scottish Labour Party had over 40 seats in Scotland and helped it form governments in, uh, in Westminster. I would be surprised if they even got more than 20 seats. But they could get 15. They could pick up. It's just why I said earlier that the SNP, for all its travails and all the mess it's in, in my view, is still likely to remain the biggest party in Scotland for some time to come yet. It's just people have got used to voting that way. But it pays a price for that. Increasingly, it's become the party of central Scotland, uh, of the central belt between Glasgow and Edinburgh, and less and less the party where it started, which is in the more rural areas and the northeast of Scotland, the prosperous northeast of Scotland. But it's worried about Labour, and it's coming out with policies designed to appeal to that former Labour vote in the west of Scotland in particular. It will pay a price for that. Labour will pick up a number of these seats in the greater uh, Glasgow region. And even 15 would be a big help to Keir Starmer. I think at the moment he's got one. 15, last time I looked, would be 15 times the seats he's got, he's got now. So I think it is going to go to some extent Labour's way. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Andrew. Next, world leaders are in Belfast to mark 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. But can Northern Ireland ever move on when the violence of the Troubles has not truly been acknowledged? I'm joined now by spectator columnist Douglas Murray and former leader of the DUP and now broadcaster Arlene Foster. Douglas, Arlene, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Douglas, you write in the magazine this week about people who are involved in the Troubles now being held up and lauded as heroes and sort of men of peace. Um, can you tell us a bit about that to get us started? Uh, yes, it's something which, as I mentioned in my column in the Spectator this week, it, it is not new. Uh, we've just had the 25th anniversary celebrations of the Good Friday Agreement. We had, of course, Joe Biden flying into Northern Ireland for a matter of hours, then doing a sort of family trip around uh, the Republic of Ireland for a week or so. Um, uh, we had the Clintons arriving in Northern Ireland for a conference and um, a, a lot of people claiming uh, credit for the agreement. And I mentioned in my piece, uh, you know, let, let, let's not be sort of ungracious about this. The, the Good Friday Agreement has meant that violence in Northern Ireland has been down significantly for the last 30 years. It's not gone away, as many people on the mainland seem to think. Um, but we haven't had 3,000 more bodies, thank goodness. There's an enormous amount, that, an incalculable amount that must be said for it. But one of the things I say, the dissenting note I, I, I put in is one that I've tried to put in before, which is that um, for many of us, it remains galling to see the people, and I'm thinking in particular here of Jerry Adams caught in a smiling selfie with President Joe Biden, seeing these people being venerated as men of peace who actually were exactly the opposite of that. Mm. And what I've said, and, and lest anyone think that I'm sort of, um, you know, ignorant of the things that went on on all sides here, remind people, you know, I wrote a book on Bloody Sunday 12 years ago. I attended the Savile hearings for many years into, in, into the atrocity of Bloody Sunday. Um, I'm not ignoring problems on any or all sides, but it is exceptionally galling that, as I mentioned in that book, uh, the people who said don't shoot people in the head, whatever the circumstances, kept being left behind. 
and the people who believed in shooting people in the head for 30 years and then suddenly said, actually, let's not do that, are now lauded as the men of peace. It's still extremely hard to stomach. And I always fear that when we take the wrong lessons from history, the likelihood of repeating it is exceptionally high. Mm. And Arlene, what do you make of that? I mean, is there a case that some people will make that we kind of need to put the violence behind us and not, maybe not turn a blind eye to it, but kind of move on from that? Or, or are you more in agreement with Douglas there? Well, first of all, I mean, I remember the events of 25 years ago very well indeed. And um, I've listened to uh, various speakers over this last couple of days talking about um, the need to say yes and uh, they should sh- people should show leadership by saying yes. And actually, 25 years ago, I said no to the Belfast Agreement. Um, and the reason I did that was um, because the agreement allowed terrorists to leave jail uh, without any uh, attention given in the agreement to those people who had paid the ultimate, they, who had lost their loved ones, whose loved ones had been murdered. Uh, by the very people that were being let out of prison. And I found that not only morally objectionable, and it was and is morally objectionable, but also what message was that sending to people who had conducted violence uh, for a long period of time? What if it sent the message to them that actually, um, in exchange for you stopping uh, your violence and in exchange for killing people, Uh, you will now be able to stand uh, as a member of the Legislative Assembly. You will be able to become uh, a minister in the government. Uh, But yet, uh, and we know this very well, don't we, the legacy of what happened uh, all those years ago still hasn't been dealt with uh, and victims are still hurting. And what I found incredible yesterday was the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris, at the very large conference, which is largely Americans' Uh, coming along and speaking to um, other academics and and people from the Irish government and people from the UK government and all congratulating themselves on what a wonderful job they've done. Chris Heaton-Harris gave a speech where he praised, wait for it, the courage and leadership of Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, which I, I just find very difficult. And I think of all those victims who are listening to that, and I've looked at some of their uh, social media accounts today, and frankly, they're absolutely outraged. They're very hurt. And this just isn't victims from one side of the community, to take up Douglas's point. This is victims from right across the community who feel that they are just forgotten about. And instead, we're going to glorify the people who were actually involved in murdering people for 25, 30 years. And what went through your head, Arlene, when you saw that picture of Jerry Adams and Joe Biden together in a, in a selfie? Well, I wasn't in, you know, I, w- I wasn't surprised by that at all. And I'm sure Douglas wasn't surprised either because uh, President Joe Biden um, has long been a friend of the Irish Republican and movement. Um, he was photographed with Rita O'Hare, who was on the run uh, from UK authorities from 1972 for him, her involvement. Uh, in relation to the murder or the sorry the attempted murder of a soldier here in Northern Ireland she then went on the run uh, and was wanted up until the time of her death just a month ago uh, but he had no difficulty in uh, standing for a photograph with Rita O'Hare so it doesn't surprise me at all uh, that he that he stands for a photograph with Jerry Adams. Mm. And Douglas you mentioned in your piece that you say after the peace process you know there's been sort of this poison 
in Ireland and Northern Ireland that hasn't been rooted out. I mean, do you link it to sort of the rise in a bit of sectarian violence that we've seen recently, for example, in the run up to the, the 25 year anniversary? Um, the, the problem is that it hasn't gone away and the Good Friday Agreement didn't make it go away. My own prediction has always been that the IRA would be back because it was throughout the 20th century. And it was because the poison tree uh, has not been uprooted. I, I mention in the piece my late friend Sean O'Callaghan, who acted as a, a double agent within the Army Council of the IRA, a man of exceptional bravery, who was my great honour to be friends with. Um, Sean spent the last years of his life writing, among other things, a biography of of James Connolly, one of the heroes of 1916. And I remember when I asked him why he was devoting his, 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 what time he had left to this, he said, Connolly was the man who radicalized me and made me do terrible things. Sean himself as a young man killed people in cold blood, believing this terrible cause. And he said, I want to go, up, go back and dig that tree up. I want, to, I, I want to, to get the poison out. I want to do whatever I can so that it's not still there, so that the poison tree doesn't keep bearing bloody fruit. But when I look at pictures from the Cregan in recent days and of, of teenagers who don't remember the troubles going out with petrol bombs and gleefully entertaining themselves, you see once again that toxic mixture of boredom, romanticism, and veneration of violence that is still there. And that's the cocktail. That's the cocktail. I mean, remember, well, one of the books that the, the, the provost and others still hate most is Malachi O'Doherty's the, the, the Trouble with Guns. And the reason they hate it is because O'Doherty in that book highlights precisely this, you know, the way in which in Republican newspapers to this day, People sort of say, you know, uh, uh, commemorating our, our much-loved son, you know, who's now with the angels, you know, who sort of blew himself up whilst trying to make an IED yeah. to put in a butcher's shop. You know, this sort of toxic poison tree is still there. And, you know, the politicians in Westminster and Washington like to think it isn't, but it is. And they've done nothing to address it. And in the case of Joe Biden, I'm afraid, he and other senior Democrats like Chuck Schumer, who spoke a couple of years ago at the Sinn Féin conference calling for a united Ireland, which, as I always remind people, is as outrageous as an MP from Westminster going to America and calling for Texas to succeed from the union. Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, these senior Democrats, they continue to actually water the poison tree. They continue to do so. Read some of the Boston newspapers on any of this. They're more radical than anything written on the radical left of the British uh, 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 journalistic system. Arlene, do you take such a negative view? Do you think that poison's still there? Do you think there is still the capacity for sectarian violence in, Isle in Northern Ireland? Part of the difficulty is we allow the glorification of past terrorism to continue. Uh, and whilst, of course, uh, those of us who live in Northern Ireland are very thankful that we don't live in the 70s and 80s, which I grew up in. And, 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 and I'm really glad that my children don't have to deal with that on a day and daily basis. But the glorification of terrorism continues. And therefore, you will see the leaders of Sinn Féin go to commemorations uh, for people who, frankly, 
were murderers. And uh, one that I know very well is Seamus McElwain, who killed a number of people in County Fermanagh, tried to kill my own father because he was a police officer, didn't succeed on that occasion because he was very young at that time. But he went on to kill a lot of people. And Martin McGuinness used to go to that commemoration every year and talk about a, what a wonderful person Seamus McElwain was. And that has an impact on young people because they look at that and they say, oh, this man must have been a great man and look what he did for Ireland, so-called. And that has an impact. And that, then you get into um, the situation where young people uh, today from a Republican background don't think there's anything wrong with chanting about the IRA. Ooh, up the ra, they will chant in your face as if it's some cultural right that they have to do that. Whereas in actual fact, they are lauding people who used to go out and murder their neighbours on country roads in Northern Ireland. And it's wrong. And I think government have a responsibility to deal with that issue. And they haven't dealt with it over this past 25 years. They haven't brought about reconciliation, true reconciliation in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's just the absence of violence here. So therefore, it's not impacting on people in Westminster. And I, I really regret that because if you're genuine about peace building, then you have to recognise where the difficulties are. And certainly the glorification is one of the things that we need to tackle. To, to flip that on its head, Arlene, though, do you think the unionist side has come to terms with its own links to violence? Well, I don't know what you mean by the unionist side, because you see, when Douglas was first speaking, I, I was thinking to myself, uh, people often in Northern, when they're looking at Northern Ireland, separate us into Catholic and Protestant, Unionists and Nationalists. Actually, it was the law-abiding people on one side and the terrorists of all hues on the other side. And the poor, unfortunate police service of Northern Ireland, or the RUC as it then was, in the middle, trying to keep those people who were law-abiding safe from uh, terrorists of whatever hue on the other side. So it, it, it does get frustrating for those of us who have lived through the troubles when you hear people think that because I'm from a unionist background that I would in some way be in favour of paramilitaries from a loyalist disposition. I'm not. I think those people shouldn't have been allowed out of prison either, frankly, and should have been dealt with in an effective way. But what happened in 1998 was that prisoners from loyalist paramilitaries and Republican paramilitaries were allowed to walk free. And I think that huge uh, thing that happened then, and Tony Blair has made reference to it uh, over this past week and said it was a terribly difficult thing, but it had to be done. Well, why did it have to be done? Why did we not stick by the rule of law and stick by the justice system and deal with those people who wanted to go out and murder and kill? Instead, we've allowed them to go free. And I think that there are consequences for that of a generational nature. And we're seeing those consequences now in places like Londonderry, unfortunately. Um, and it has to be stopped. By the way, John, if I may pick up and just add to Arlene's point. Yeah, of course. That, I think that this yeah. issue of equivalency is extremely yeah. important. I mentioned in the piece, I was no fan ever of the, the late Reverend Ian Paisley. I thought he was a sort of sectarian bigot, loudmouth of a kind I really don't care for. But the idea even that there was a sort of equivalency between Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness is absolutely nonsensical. Reverend Ian Paisley was not leading torture gangs on a nightly basis, was not getting people to come uh, back to, to Northern Ireland in order to murder them like Martin McGuinness did. Uh, on, on occasions we can prove 
the way we have audio recordings and much more. Um, and as and as for the, the, the wider issue, I would just go again on this issue of it because it's it's as Arlene said, yes, there's a sort of ease to, about making the equivalency. Well, all sides, etc. Et yes. I'm talking about the specific thing that, for instance, uh, uh, remind me, sorry, Arlene, Michael Stone was the, the madman. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. yes. <clears throat> take an example of Michael Stone. Michael Stone carried out a set of sectarian killings uh, um, in Northern Ireland, including famously the uh, attack in the cemetery um, of the, uh, you know, during the funeral of the, of the bodies of the people who were brought back from Gibraltar. Now, uh, Michael Stone was a classic example of a sort of a, um, a radical terrorist extremist from, from the other side. OK, here's the thing. Like, nobody is lauding Michael Stone. He isn't in a devolved assembly. He was not made, as Martin McGuinness was, a deputy first minister. He um, was not in charge of education in Northern Ireland at any point. Um, nobody thinks it's some incredibly difficult test to condemn him. We get back to this point that, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, the current head of Sinn Féin, the leader of the opposition in the Irish Parliament in Dublin, is taken to be bloodied and pay, pay homage to Sean Russell, a Nazi and former IRA leader in the 1940s who died on a German U-boat. For once, the use of the term Nazi in 2023 is not hyperbole. The current head of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou Macdonald, is taken to pay homage at the statue of a murderer who was a Nazi who was leading a bombing campaign against British cities as the Luftwaffe was bombing those same British cities. And Mary Lou Macdonald has to pay homage. Why is it? What is it about this movement that means that you still have to pay homage to Nazis and terrorists and killers and bombers if you are to rise in the ranks of the movement? Does nobody see the problem here? You know, this is what I would like us to, to, to see addressed. And I've said before to endless Northern Ireland ministers, you know, there have been endless inquiries, inquiry after inquiry, and everybody could have one, but somehow it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Mm. So turning to the future, Arlene, do you know, that poison still exists, that sort of glorification of violence and so on. Uh, do you have any hope for the future of Northern Ireland? Do you think this can be resolved? Look, uh, I've been a politician in Northern Ireland since I was a teenager, and I think that you have to be an optimist if you're a politician in Northern Ireland, and I am an optimist. And the good people of Northern Ireland, those people who get up every morning, go to work, and want Northern Ireland to be a success, will make it a success. But that doesn't deal with the issues that are still there, remnants from our past, which are still infecting what's happening here today. And that has to be dealt with. And I think... Instead of allowing uh, Sinn Féin members to say that they're just speaking their truth and they're just remembering their patriot dead, they should be called out uh, and it should be pointed out that it is morally objectionable to laud people who went out to murder their neighbours for no other reason than they put on a uniform to try and protect citizens in Northern Ireland. That was it. And indeed, on many occasions along the border, all you had to be was a Protestant to get taken out because you maybe had a farmland that was near to the border and they wanted to have it for them uh, sold in a particular way. So, look, all of that sectarianism, all of the glorification of terrorism must be called out if we're to make any progress in reconciling in, in a true way in Northern Ireland and not just talking about reconciliation 
um, and if it's a ni- as if it's a nice thing to do, and middle class people go along and they have a a nice time together, and that's seen in some way to be reconciliation. Reconciliation is about calling out the difficulties and the real challenges, not just trying to paper over the cracks. And therefore, we have to call out what's wrong. And for me, what is wrong is about the past glorification of terrorism, which continues to infect what's happening today. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Aline, and thank you, Douglas. Next, Louise Perry writes the cover piece for this week's magazine about the ethical dilemmas of surrogacy. Can surrogacy ever be done in a way that is best for the mother and the baby? Louise joins me now. Thank you, Louise, for joining us on Spectator TV to discuss your fascinating cover piece on the ethics of surrogacy. Now, to start us off, just for for readers who are probably maybe not as familiar with the landscape, what what is the current situation in the UK at the moment when it comes to surrogacy and and how are we different from other countries? Uh, So we permit altruistic surrogacy in this country. We don't have paid surrogacy. Um, uh, uh, Intended parents are allowed to reimburse surrogates for certain expenses. And in practice, sometimes what happens is that money is slightly passed onto the table. So you end up with sort of de facto paid arrangements, but that's not strictly legal. Um, and at the moment, this is the crucial thing that the Law Commission are hoping to reform. You, uh, When a baby is born, their default legal parents are the surrogate mother and her spouse, if she has one. And intended parents have to go through the... Um, a parental order process which can take several months in order to be legally the parents of the child, even if the child is living with them, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this means as well that if surrogate mothers change their minds and want to keep the baby, which they sometimes do, uh, it's easier for them to do so because they are sort of by default the legal parent. What the Law Commission's reforms would do is they would reverse that assumption so that at birth the default legal parents would be the intended parents and the surrogate mother would have the option to um, rescind her consent and apply for a parental order herself. But it would be that much more difficult, particularly remembering that there's often quite a big sort of uh, class differential between intended parents and and surrogate mothers. Uh, Even in altruistic arrangements, it's more common for surrogate mothers to be less wealthy, less well-educated, have less access to things like legal representation, which would make securing custody easier. Right. And so some people will say to that, at the moment, we have a bit of a sort of legal limbo when the baby is born and before it's adopted by the new parents. And it kind of leaves everyone in a bit of no man's land, including the surrogate mother. I mean, what do, what do you say to that in that, it, in that it should be simplified and made easier in that regard? Well, that's just the nature of surrogacy, that it's enormously complicated legally, emotionally, physically, everything, you know, because often what you're talking about here is maybe as many as five different parents of different kinds you know you can have an egg donor a sperm donor a gestational surrogate meaning a woman who isn't actually genetically related to the baby and two legal parents so you've got a lot of different adults in the mix all of whom have different relationships to the child I think it's fanciful to think that you could make that simple (laughs) you know and also I don't think that we currently most European countries are actually very restrictive on surrogacy um a lot of European countries just ban it outright, either in its altruistic or its commercial forms. We are probably the most, um, almost the most liberal, certainly in Western Europe. So what we would be doing by um, adopting the reforms proposed by the Law Commission would be to move towards a much more American model, 
you know, not fully commercializing as in say California, but definitely moving in that direction um, in that we would be giving more rights and more sort of legal support and sanction to the intended parents and actually um, treating the surrogate mother as much less like a mother, you know, much less like any other woman who's giving birth and much more like, I mean, basically, as I argue in, in the piece, as, as a sort of vessel, really, with no actual um, relationship to the child at all, which I think is a, a misrepresentation of what pregnancy actually involves emotionally and physically for both mother and baby. And, and am I right to say that you would prefer us to be a bit more in line with the European situation? Or do you think the status quo we have now is, is right? The type of surrogacy arrangement, which I think would be the most ethical, would be one where surrogate mothers continue have a re- to have a relationship with the baby. So there are some circumstances where that might happen, you know, like a, a sister giving birth on behalf of her infertile sister or, or something along those lines where, yes, it is emotionally complicated, but that, you know, the, the, the surrogate mother remains in the child's life. There isn't this abrupt um, breaking of that maternal infant bond. So, uh, you know, I'm tempted to say that that that, that kind of altruistic surrogacy arrangement um, should be permitted. The problem is it is just very hard to regulate. It's very hard to prevent um, exploitation. I mean, um, there are a couple of examples I give in the piece of, you know, even if, even if there's no payment, even if, uh, you know, it, it see, might seem from the outside as if it's um, extremely ca- carefully regulated and ethical, you can still have exploitation. You can still have, um, you know, one of the cases I mentioned, the piece, for instance, is an intellectually disabled woman who was sort of tricked into doing this on behalf of a couple. And we know, I mean, I, I, I probably don't need to go in, into detail with listeners about how, how ugly commercial surrogacy can look. Um, I just think that this whole industry is, is deeply suspect. And I think that any moves towards wanting to liberalize the law on it in this country is, is a move in the wrong direction. Um, you mentioned in your piece as well, it's really interesting about the sort of, even when the, the surrogate mother isn't biologically related to the child, they're giving birth to there is a huge sort of biological connection they have with their child and that that's quite an extreme thing to break up can you tell us a bit about that please yeah so the argument that you'll often get from people who are are defenders of the industry is they'll say that surrogate mothers gestational surrogate mothers so that is no um when there's a separate egg donor um aren't related to the child so you know why would you care basically about their 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 relationship with that child or, or, or indeed the child's relationship with them, you know, why would you want her to remain in the child's life? Why would you want the child to have the option of um, knowing the and being known by the woman who, who gave them life? Um, I think what's kind of curious about this view to say that basically the only thing that really matters is the genetic connection and the fact that this woman has like grown this child in her body this child's entire experience of life until birth has been inside this woman's body you know when newborns are born they can't even see properly but the only thing that they know is is the 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 smell and the touch of their mothers and we know as i mentioned in the piece that newborns experience um intense stress when they're separated from their mothers at birth the fact that there's no genetic connection doesn't lessen that emotional connection at birth 
And I think in a weird kind of way, it's extraordinarily sexist to say that the only thing that matters is, is the genetic connection. Because in a way, what you're doing there is you're saying that actually the sort of father type relationship, the, the, the giving of genetic material, but not actually, um, gestating and giving birth to a child, that's the connection that matters, you know, and actually what women do, meaningless, you know, throw it away, like who cares? I think that there's something, you know, I, I, I don't normally use this word, but I think there's something actually extraordinarily patriarchal <laughs> about taking that view of what pregnancy actually means on an emotional and a physical level. It's mm, very interesting. Um, what would you say? There is the sort of more libertarian view, which says that everyone involved, if everyone involved is sort of able to consent and they make this decision knowing what they're getting into, then it shouldn't sort of be the state's job to get involved and tell them what to do. I mean, what would you, what would you say to that kind of view? I mean, on that basis, you could permit the buying and selling of organs, right? Which some libertarians do, um, and of all sorts of other, um, uh, human body parts and all sorts of other acts, which we, we, we don't permit people to do, you know, um, I'm not a libertarian. I think that we should have social guardrails. I think that the state is in the business of protecting people's emotional well-being, physical well-being. And sometimes that means um, actually putting limits on the things that we can legally consent to. And, you know, the other big factor here that no one wants to talk about is, is, is the well-being of the child who doesn't consent to any of this. And to say that, um, you know, that the, the UK government gives sanction to uh, an industry that engineers the separation of mother and infant makes it impossible for children to have relationships to with the women who give them life long term. I, yeah, I mean, no one it seems is is thinking about the fact that um, children often desperately crave that that relationship even into adulthood. And what 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 surrogacy does is it basically prevents them from having it right from the get go. Mm, I mean. It's obviously a very sensitive area, but you know, no. We often say, you know, like no pregnancy would be perfect. There's obviously always going to be some things that are not done that are quite maybe most beneficial to a child. I mean, do you say, you know, we live in an imperfect world? I mean, some would say, you know, these children will be raised in happy families, um, that their benefit is going to be much greater in general than if they weren't born. I mean, what what do you say to that? It's true that, you know, life is imperfect, but I don't think that's sort of um, any reason to make it any less perfect than it already is. I mean, uh, take the case of adoption. You know, we know that there are cases where children have to be adopted, have to be removed from their, from their, from their mothers at birth. Um, those are tragedies and they cause emotional harm to everyone involved long term and they are in incredibly sort of closely monitored by social services and are seen as an act of last resort. What surrogacy does is it sets out from the get-go to engineer that situation for no good reason except for the fact that the intended parents would like to would would like to have a child in that fashion, would prefer to do that than to adopt or foster or you know, like whatever other options are available. I just think that the inconsistency there is really striking. Um, and it's because I don't think that actually the surrogacy arrangement really takes account of the child's best interest at all. I think it's actually all to do with the desires of the intended parents. I mean, if we take that to its logical conclusion, Louise, that does kind of suggest that gay men, couples who can't have children, 
shouldn't be able to have a biological child. Are you, are you kind of comfortable with that tension? What some gay couples do, including friends of mine, and I think that this is often a good option, is to um, sort of gay couples to pair up with lesbian couples and to, to, to you know, do the traditional, well, semi-traditional turkey-based approach rather than the full um, full uh, IVF process. And the um, the mums who give birth to these children are the ones who have custody of them and the children are with them. But obviously they have a very strong relationship with um, their fathers who live locally and involved in their lives. You know, I there are ways of doing this which actually I think protect everyone's interests and mean that the child has has all of their all of their biological parents in their lives and is never removed from their mothers and so on. So I don't think I, I you know, I'm not anti at all LGBT families. It's just that surrogacy as a particular method of creating LGBT families, I think, has um, enormous ethical problems. And do you worry as well about the sort of wider exploitation of women if this is made a bit more lax and the rules around it are made more lax? Yeah, we know that there have been um, many cases of women being mistreated in the surrogacy industry. Um, I am um, actually my podcast, Made Mother Matriarch. Um, I had uh, Jennifer Lal, who's a former nurse and and um, a surrogacy campaigner, on this week, and she's done a lot of research into the health risks associated with surrogacy, which can be um, really very shocking. Um, there have been women who have died. In America, as a consequence of of, of surrogacy, um, the uh, the rate of complications is much higher for several reasons. Um, as I mentioned in my piece, rates of postnatal depression are higher for surrogate mothers. There, there are lots of um, ways in which surrogate mothers can can suffer um, as a consequence of surrogacy, and um, and 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 we know that there's all sorts of cases of. Um, manipulation and exploitation of women who desperately want the money and don't necessarily know what they're actually getting themselves into. Mm, brilliant. Thank you very much, Louise. That was fascinating. Now, continuing on the topic of surrogacy, we're going to speak to someone with a different point of view now. Kim Cotton made history in 1985 as the first woman in the UK to carry a baby for an anonymous couple. She's been working in the surrogacy world for 35 years now and joins me on the show. Kim, thank you so much for coming on Spectator TV um, to discuss this fascinating subject and I know one that's very personal for you. Um, to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your experience as a surrogate mother? Um, I believe you're the first surrogate in the UK, is that right? Um, yes, I was a surrogate in 1985, um, actually working through a commercial agency um, from the USA at that time. Um, and uh, I never expected all the furor that would um, her birth would create. Um, and um, six months later, they rushed through some um, laws to ban commercial surrogacy in the UK, which I actually totally agree with. And we've never changed on that point. You set up an organisation now to help surrogates find find potential adoptive parents. I mean, how different is is the landscape now to, 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 when, to, when, to when you were a surrogate? Um, well, we, we launched COTS on Mother's Day in 1988. Um, so we've been going 35 years now. And in that time, we've had 1,115 births with another 10 pregnancies um, due this year. Um, and times have changed drastically. 
Um, back in the old days, there was only traditional surrogacy where the birth mother was actually the genetic mother as well. Um, nowadays, the um, because of IVF and, and the science and the step forward and the acceptability of surrogacy now, um, most of the surrogates choose to be gestational surrogates, which means they can actually be uh, have an embryo transferred to them. So when they give birth, they're not the genetic mother of the child. Right. And your organisation, how does it work? So are you allowed to put surrogates in touch with each other, with parents and that kind of thing? Or do you have to be a bit more hands off? Yeah. We have them screened and a potential surrogate. So we ask for um, a DBS check, a GP report, and they were referred to um, our independent counsellor so that they're well um, informed of the implications of any journey um, that they might start. Um, but the surrogate really is in the um, driving seat because she chooses who she would like to work with because it's very much about um, building up a friendship and a solid bond and it must be based on friendship because there is no contract, there's no enforceable um, anything that can make her give up a baby if she doesn't want to. So you have to make sure that the, the relationship that they have um, built up is built on very solid foundations. I see. And so it seems like your organisation takes a lot of care to make sure this is done as safely and as, as best as possible. Um, I think I'm right in saying there's no legal obligation to go through an organisation like yours at the moment. Do you kind of worry that that when things are done in a different way, there might be more worrying outcomes or perhaps exploitation and that kind of thing? I, I think it's um, always best to go through an agency because of the support and the guidance that you get. And it's really hand-holding and it's a step-by-step -step guide. So, you know, as you go through the transfer, getting accepted at a clinic, we can help with all of those things because it's a very lonely and it's a very... Uh, a traumatic journey to take and people you know enter it with such trepidation and worry that you know belonging to an organization can actually take some of that away but obviously there are independent um, groups that manage quite well um, but we always protect every party from any exploitation if we can um, especially when it comes to finances. Do you, I mean, you mentioned the sort of the trauma there. Um, I presume you're referring to particularly giving up the baby for the surrogate mother after it's been born. I mean, do, do you have worries about the mothers that you support through this, that, that you know, that's a huge, a huge thing to do for them and, and possibly for the baby as well? Um, I, I don't think there's any effect on a child at all, to be quite honest. I think um, research has shown that surrogate children actually flourish and do a lot better than maybe the children born through natural circumstances um, because this child is so wanted um, and they've taken such a lot of time and money and effort to bring this child into the world then they put an awful lot into the raising of that child and making sure that it's secure and safe and a, a surrogate child will never find out that they're a surrogate child they will just always have known that's our way of thinking and that's the way it should be. There's no shock when they find out, oh, I'm a surrogate child. And often, to be quite honest, in most circumstances, 
the intending parents and the surrogate mother will be in touch for years after. So it's an ongoing relationship and it's like having an extended family. So we always feel special in that child's life. And, um, you know, we're always known as a tummy mummy. So you encourage surrogates to stay in touch with, with the eventual family, is that right? Yes, if that's what um, the couples and the surrogate agree, it's the best thing. It's the best thing for everybody because the surrogate can see how life-changing her gift has been. And for the child, you know, it's just knowing all parties involved with their um, coming into this world. So it's, it's a win-win situation. And so this piece is, these pieces we're running this week have kind of come about because the Law Commission have proposed changes to the law, which will make sort of the, the contracts more secure. It'll make it easier for the child to hand the child over uh, to the adoptive parents. I mean, do you, do you support those changes that the Law Commission have put forward? Um, I support a lot of the changes that are being brought forward, um, but there's some very sticky issues that I don't. Um, I think, um, yes, I think clinic um, organisations, surrogate organisations like ourselves being licensed will be probably quite a good thing. Um, but to be quite honest, you know, a lot of the things that they're insisting upon, we do already. We are very self-regulating and we do take our role in matching couples very seriously. It's a huge responsibility. And um, my worry is always about the well-being of a surrogate so we always ensure that they are looked after for several weeks and months after a child is born and we're always there if they need to talk but in most cases they are really flying high on the sense of achievement that they have uh, they experience it's it's a wonderful wonderful thing to be a surrogate mother and it's not just a a momentary feeling of well-being it lasts for years because the child is here for years mm. do, do you worry at all that the changes might make it more difficult if a surrogate mother does change their mind and want to keep the child it, it's you know what it's irrelevant now we haven't had um, a, a surrogate change her mind in in three decades those bad old days are gone and quite honestly uh, 99% of the surrogate journeys we do are, are gestational surrogacy. So surrogates do not go into surrogacy wanting to extend their own family when they could naturally have a child with someone they love um, and choose. You know, why would you keep a baby that is being specifically um, born for the parents to take? You know, you, you, you'd be stabbing them in the back and almost killing them. Um, with the trauma if you decided to keep a child it just doesn't happen it's not even a worry that I even think about anymore mm, that's really interesting thank you very much Kim and finally I'm joined now by Professor David Abelafia Professor Emeritus of Mediterranean History at the University of Cambridge he has written for our website about the strange way Cleopatra has been portrayed in a new Netflix series he joins me now David thank you so much for joining us on Spectator TV now you wrote a fantastic piece for Coffee House this week on a Netflix docu-series called African Queens, and in particular an episode about Cleopatra, which the show very much portrays as a black African. Now, to any viewers who aren't as familiar with the history of that time, could you please tell us a little bit about why you think that is a very odd thing to do? 
Well, the reality is that Cleopatra, she was the last member of this dynasty, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, which went all the way back to the death of Alexander the Great and the division of Alexander's empire among his Macedonian generals. So um, the result of that was a Greek dynasty was established based in Alexandria. Uh, and are they, uh, by and large, I mean, there's very little evidence that they ever married anybody who wasn't also Greek. Uh, indeed, sometimes um, brothers and sisters married, which was an Egyptian practice, one that the Greeks actually detested. Um, so uh, really, you know, all the evidence we have, including also the visual evidence, because there are quite a lot of portraits which are thought to be of Cleopatra, you can't always be sure, show her looking very, very Greek. Um, and most of in fact, all her predecessors, apart from herself, none of them even spoke the Egyptian language. She's the first one to have learned the Egyptian language because she was an exceptionally intelligent uh, individual. She, she spoke a great many languages uh, and you know, she was a very cultured uh, individual. Mm. I mean, that adoption of uh, Cleopatra's adoption of Egyptian identity is also quite an interesting story as well. Um, though, do, do you think she might be guilty of cultural uh, appropriation if we look at it today? Well, in a sense, yes, the Ptolemies, they sort of took over the uh, the way that the pharaohs had behaved. So we have, for instance, a little relief of her sacrificing to the god Ptah. And there she's, addressed, she's dressed as a pharaoh. And, you know, that was part of the image the Ptolemies cultivated. And so they worshipped Egyptian gods. They also worshipped Greek gods. And there was even this god called Serapis, who was a sort of mixture of Greek and Egyptian, who'd been specially invented by the Ptolemies, really, to sort of bring together the communities. Uh, so uh, that was certainly part of what she was. But, but by and large, these people were very emphatically Greek. I mean, one of the great things they did was they founded this library in Alexandria, which had, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of, of books, and which was predominantly Greek literature. It included other things. It included a translation of the Bible in, from Hebrew into Greek. But, you know, the fact was, it was a translation into Greek. That was the language that Cleopatra would have used in talking to Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, etc. Uh, she probably knew Latin, but uh, but they knew Greek extremely well. Mm, and that was her native tongue. Um, you mentioned in your piece as well that Alexandria didn't wasn't even possibly see itself that much as an Egyptian city. Is that right? Indeed, it's a very interesting feature of Alexandria, which uh, apparently survived right through, well, didn't survive, but was revived in the 19th century, this idea among Alexandrians that they didn't really live in Egypt. And of course, in a way, it was true. It was a new city founded by Alexander the Great, and its population contained enormous percentage of Greeks, uh, and also a very significant percentage of Jews. And the native Egyptian population, therefore, was to some extent marginalized. Uh, so there was this idea, it was the phrase Alexandria ad Egyptum, ad meaning Alexandria on the edge of towards, but not quite in. Egypt. Uh, and it seems that this was something which was in the 19th century also, it was a way in which these very mixed communities, because the city was full of Greeks and Italians and so on, again, they thought of themselves as actually part of Europe rather than Africa. 
So we have all this evidence showing that Cleopatra was very much from the Greek world and so on. Uh, was there, has there been any sort of scholarship to sort of defend Netflix's point to suggest that she's got maybe more links as she is, there might have been black, for example? Well, there's been a little bit. I, I, I've looked at various websites. Um, there was one from an American university, I have to say, not a university I'd heard of before, but which was very much defending the sort of position I'm taking that, yes, she was Macedonian. It's, it's as, as straightforward as that. One of the most interesting, this isn't a scholarly reaction, but it's one of the most interesting reactions, actually comes from an actress who is also playing Cleopatra in a film which I believe is being made at the moment. And this is Gal Gadot, uh, the Israeli actress, who uh, she says uh, there's the truth of the matter is that he was Macedonian because people objected to her playing the role. Um, and The Guardian even ran a piece uh, saying, this was the headline, Gal Gadot as Cleopatra is a backward step for Hollywood representation. Uh, but then they had to backtrack a bit because they realized that she herself came from the Middle East and she is a sixth or seventh generation Israeli. I mean, her ancestors lived in Ottoman Palestine. So uh, uh, she's also actually from the region. The Guardian got a little bit sort of mixed up over all of this. So the Rush, everyone wants a piece of Cleopatra. But, um... yeah. but it set off a similar debate, actually. The making of Gadot's film made, set off a similar debate uh, three years ago to the one that's been set off by Netflix. Uh, shouldn't she be played by a, a, a... The Guardian wanted a North African uh, actor. Um, it, it, it doesn't reflect the historical reality. I mean, to play a bit of devil's advocate, David, do you think there's sort of a case that, you know, often the portrayals of Cleopatra are never going to be perfectly accurate? You mentioned, for example, that her, her beauty and looks have often been mythologised and she's very portrayed as a very beautiful woman, for example, when, when perhaps she wasn't. Do you think there's a case for saying that, that, that the same can be applied to race and it kind of doesn't matter how she's portrayed? Well, you could say that in a way. I mean, we've now become used since Bridgerton and all these other things to um, people of all sorts of ethnicities playing roles. That I mean, it goes back a long way. Some very distinguished uh, actors, you know, black actors in Shakespeare and so on. And and one doesn't notice it, actually, after a time watching this sort of thing. Uh, I think the problem here is that this is a Netflix series about African queens, and it really is trying to make the point, and you know, it's a perfectly valid point. There have been these black African queens who've played an important role in the history of various parts of the continent. Um, but Cleopatra is a very bad example, and it's this sort of hijacking of somebody whose real interest lies in her Greek cultural heritage uh, and her Greek ethnicity if we're going to talk about race. But as this American university website pointed out, a very good point, you can't really talk about race. Um, when you're dealing with the first century BC, that sort of language, that is language of the 20th, 21st centuries. It's not language that really applies to the society of the time of Julius Caesar. Mm. So do you get the sense this is very much placing our values back on the past and, and in this case, feeling yes, quite badly yes. at it? Yes. I mean, it's an attempt to sort of generate pride in the history of, of black people and to underline the fact, which is undoubtedly true, that uh, the history of 
Africa, particularly black Africa, has been so much ignored in the past. But one also has to bear in mind that the history of the northern parts of Africa uh, has often been much more engaged with the Mediterranean. Um, and you think of the Berbers, the Berbers who were for so long the majority population all along that stretch from Morocco to the edges of Egypt. Um, they, um, many of them, very fair skinned, you know, lots of blue eyes and so on. Uh, you, you just can't start applying these criteria based on skin color. It just doesn't work. Um, and if you were to go to the deep south of Africa, you would find, you know, some of the very ancient peoples who'd be the Bushmen and so on, um, much lighter skinned than the population that came in in more recent centuries. Skin color is is an irrelevance really in in trying to understand the history of of the continent. Brilliant. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, David. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed Spectator TV, do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss any of our videos. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.